This episode is presented by Naoki and Future Food Co. Welcome to Meet and 3, Heritage Radio Network's weekly food news roundup. I'm your host and HRN's communications director, Kat Johnson. We're curious. Do you have as many conflicting feelings about technology as we do? One day we're cursing about how dependent we are on our iPhones. The next we wonder how we ever live without the New York Times cooking app. We love social media when it connects us to people who are doing great work in the food industry. Yet the constant stream of angry tweets can make us feel like logging off forever. This episode on technology is inspired by a conversation that HRN's Coral Lee had with Rupa Bhattacharya on a recent episode of Meant to be Eaten. She's the new editor-in-chief of Vice's food channel Munchies. Take a listen to Coral and Rupa dish about how internet culture changed the food media landscape for better and for worse since Rupa's early days at the Food Network. I love the fact that, I mean, it's interesting, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because while food, uh, Instagram and social media have fully democratized um, what gets to be relevant and what gets to be legitimate in the world of food, it's also sort of devalued the sort of expertise. So many different types of food get to be shown in a world that used to only focus on a couple, right? I don't know, I definitely remember pitching like raclette you know, years ago, uh, and being told that it was too obscure. And now because Instagram is so obsessed with dripping cheese, like raclette's everywhere. There's hella raclette on the internet now. I would counter that though, because I feel like it also depends on who you follow, right? Because I would not see anything on raclette. Like my feed has just a ton of pickles on it. And so it also, while it is democratizing, it also I am being shaped by what the people I follow are interested in. And so how... Are you being radicalized by into pickles? Is I this like so. YouTube when you watch like one thing on YouTube I, I and all of a sudden you're watching like conspiracy <laughs> theories? Yeah, all my um, suggested videos are like, ferment this. The two also analyzed Facebook. I don't use Facebook, but when I do go on, there are all these people that like share videos of Oreo cake pops. What's the point of making these videos or sharing these videos? Like, is it more so defining the aesthetic of BuzzFeed or like what was the purpose? It's really hard like right every time Facebook changes their algorithm of what they find to be a valuable social interaction and they actually have like a name for it it's like meaningful social interactions like MSIs Hmm. it's really like it's as if you ask robots to describe how humans interact with each other and like quantify it that's what it looks like now my understanding is that MSIs are like your friends need to have or people who know each other need to have conversations in the comments of a story like that of a of a, in a piece of content in order for that content to be like ranked highly on the MSI scale. Mm-hmm. So like, so let's say you post those Oreo cake pops, and or somebody posts those Oreo cake pops, and I comment to my friend, hey, you know, you would really like this, and she responds back like, oh no, absolutely not, that's disgusting. That counts as an MSI, even mm-hmm. though it's like you know, right? Because we know each other and we're engaging in the comments of somebody else's post. That gets that post props. That gets that post later like heavier weight in the algorithm. Right. So like so much of this is um, it's hard to say that it's coming from food media or it's a statement on food media as a, as a whole. It's how aggressively are the organizations choosing to participate in whatever new algorithm it is that day, hmm. um, which is. Yeah. I mean, so it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or media consumption at all. It's really it's it's how the robots decided that they were going to weight human interaction. If you'd like to hear more of Rupa's far-ranging interview with Coral, check out episode 25 of Meant to be Eaten. 
And don't worry, this is not the last you'll hear about robots on this episode. But now let's turn to Jennifer Liuzzi, HRN's resident expert on the intersection of food and tech. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real. Fast casual salad chains that boast a farm-to-counter ethos have been springing up all over the country, but a new concept called Harvest to Order actually brings the farm inside the restaurant. They're serving salads of hydroponically grown greens produced on LED illuminated shelves displayed in the space. Jen spoke with Harvest to Order's co-founders Liz Backnan and Shelley Golan about the pop-up they opened in Brooklyn earlier this summer. How are you going to explain what hydroponic is to people? So hydroponic means that you're growing plants uh, not in a traditional soil environment where the roots are anchored in soil and you water them and they get sunlight. You're uh, giving them the nutrients through nutrient-dense water. Setting this up in part was to expand uh, our mission of increasing access to an education about local wholesome food. And harvest dating is one of those things. I mean, when you buy uh, milk, you know, even at the grocery store, it'll have a sell-by date. And um, when you're buying vegetables, it'll have a sell-by date. And the question that you really should be asking is when were they harvested, these vegetables? Because vegetables, the minute you take them away from their life source, they start to decompose and they lose their nutritional shelf life. If you really do want to eat healthy, it's not just eating vegetables. It's being able to really know um, that your food was harvested uh, within a, a certain amount of time to allow for the maximum nutrition to kind of enter your body and to be absorbed. It takes time and effort to revolutionize the way we get our produce. After the success of Harvest to Order's pop-up restaurant, Liz and Shelley have big plans for the future. In the near future, you can get their microgreens through catering, vending machines, and a meal prep service. If you want to learn more, go to harvest2order.co or check out the rest of Jin Liuzzi's interview with Liz and Shelley on episode 139 of Tech Bites. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3. This episode is presented by Naoki, a Japanese restaurant located in the Chelsea neighborhood of New York City. Naoki is owned by and named for Japanese restaurateur Naoki Takahashi, and the chef is Jiro Aida, formerly of Salt and Charcoal in Brooklyn. Learn more at naokinyc.com. That's N-A-O-K-I-N-Y-C.com. This episode is also presented by Future Food Co., a scale-up accelerator for growing startups that are providing unique products and solutions across our food system. Focus areas include consumer products, local food, plant-based food, sustainable seafood, ag tech, food tech, and food waste. Learn more at futurefood.co. That's futurefood.co. Moxie Rosenblum, my dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer.
Welcome back to Meet in 3. This week, we're examining the intersection of food and technology. Transforming the global food system doesn't just happen on land. It's also taking to the seas. Are you familiar with the blue economy? According to the World Bank, the blue economy is the sustainable use of ocean resources for economic growth, better jobs, and ocean ecosystem health. It's a relatively new term, but our next guest is working hard to create a huge blue economy boom in Providence, Rhode Island. So why Providence? There's nowhere else in the world that has that heavy concentration of so-called blue tech uh, assets. That's Mark Wong. He's the co-founder of Sea Ahead, a New England-based blue tech incubator, working with startups to revolutionize ocean-related businesses. He's also putting together what he hopes will be the world's first blue tech venture capital fund. Sea Ahead believes in the power of Providence, thanks to the city's proximity to a wealth of marine tech and development centers, as well as a burgeoning tech hub. If you draw a radius of 75 miles-ish from Providence, you almost hit Woods Hole on the east, New Bedford by dollar amount, the largest fish processing city in the country. Uh, it's ground zero, for, uh, along with Rhode Island, for offshore wind. And then at the top of that is Boston, a global center of excellence for innovation. Those are just a few of the places Mark mentioned, but he's incredibly excited about the potentials of going blue. So how will this area of the U.S. directly benefit from a blue economy? Blue tech, which is the innovation part of the blue economy, and sustainability. Yeah, we're more interested on this double line, double bottom line opportunity around either merging offshore renewables, uh, uh, bringing clean tech to green shipping and green ports, and bringing tech as well in, in that example, helping uh, fisheries and aquaculture. And then, of course, uh, how do I make our cities more uh, resilient and sustainable relative to what's happening with, some, uh, with climate change? Mark introduced us to one of the tech startups he's been working with. I'm John Pollock. I'm the founder of the Oyster Common, and we're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business. The guiding mission for the Oyster Common is to catalyze the expansion of sustainable protein sources. So kind of in addition, I guess, to that environmental um, mission, we're working with a lot of often rural small businesses, helping them scale it's going to create and maintain jobs and oftentimes cultural legacies in rural communities of, you know, the working waterfront. Since John launched his business in 2016, he's been up and down the northeastern coast learning as much as he can about how to modernize the industry. What's been really cool is getting out and talking to a bunch of shellfish growers. I mean, from northern Maine uh, through New York, figuring out what makes them tick, what's their pain points. Last month, the issue of traceability caused the seafood industry quite a bit of pain. The Associated Press accused well-regarded national seafood distributor Seed a Table of fraud and labor abuse after a thorough investigation. While all of their seafood is supposed to be local, the AP reported that Seed a Table offered seafood that was farmed, illegal to fish, or out of season. Seed a Table's founder defended his company, saying, quote, Our ethics and intentions are sound but he admitted a real need to review their systems and communication, and that's exactly the kind of support John wants to offer. We're looking at basically digitization and automation of existing tasks, and that's one of them. So being able to 
look up an ID the way you might for a FedEx tracking label isn't the same thing with your seafood right now. But over the next, you know, two, three, four, five years, it might be. And we hope to get it there. So we think that there's just a lot of alignment uh, to help people, help the environment, and as well as hopefully be profitable as well. For the shellfish industry, anyway, we're looking at something that's growing at in the last 15 years, something about a 5% annual growth rate. And if you compare that to something like the U.S. GDP, you're looking at, you know, 5% for this industry versus the U.S. GDP as a whole at 2% growth. You can learn more about John Pollock's company at oystercommon.com and keep up with Mark Wong's work at c-ahead.com. We love hearing about all the ways technology can improve food systems, but it also made us wonder, has food ever helped to advance technology? It has. Meet the man who just proved a popular movie theater snack can literally help robots get a grip. I'm Steven Cerrone, and I'm a first-year PhD student uh, at Cornell University. Steven's studying soft robotics. That's the science of constructing robots from highly compliant materials. His latest choice of material surprised many of his peers. So recently we used popcorn to create uh, some actuators. An actuator is a component that helps a robot spring into action. My advisor, Kirsten Peterson, was the one that came up with the idea, and she was trying to think of like a new, a new type of actuator that would be biodegradable and that would be able to change its mechanical properties on the go. And popcorn is the first thing that she thought of, and it's, it's cheap and it's easily available. And according to Stephen, it works like a charm. The, the interesting part of the popcorn is the fact that it has a transition. You heat it up and it has that quick expansion to almost 15 times its volume, and that's what allows it to, to exert force. We showed that if you apply heat uh, to the kernels, you can get them to pop and you can use that force to your advantage to create a gripping motion. So Steven's robots are capturing the kinetic energy of the popping corn kernels. But whose popcorn performed better in the lab? Orville Redenbacher? or Paul Newman. The brand of uh, popcorn doesn't uh, really make uh, that much difference, but it was actually the heating mechanism that made the biggest difference in how, uh, up to how many times their volume expanded when they popped. In one case, we uh, we, uh, applied heat by sending current uh, through a nichrome wire coil. And so we would have the kernels uh, suck into the coil, and as you applied the voltage, they heat up and they pop. Another way was just the microwave, and I think the last one was uh, using hot air. And the microwave is definitely the the large uh, that had the the largest expansion. We also wanted to know what's next for Stephen. We're interested in building swarms of many cheap small robots and powering them. Uh, and driving them forward uh, with as little effort and as little energy as possible. We're pretty optimistic that he'd use that army of robots for good, because when we asked him to explain the true goal of this project, Stephen said it was to inspire others to dream big and discover new, unconventional materials, including food, 
to use in robotics. We can't wait to hear what all of you listeners will come up with. Just be safe when trying science experiments at home. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Write us anytime at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. Be sure to save some room on your plate for Meetin 3 every Friday afternoon. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you love what you're hearing, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And please, if you love the show, recommend it to your friends. Meetin 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Margaret Kelly, Hannah Forden, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson. Special thanks this week to Coral Lee and Jen Liuzzi. Our audio engineer is David Tadashore. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Meetin 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Tune in next week for our season finale of Meat and 3. As a follow-up to our youth episode, we're looking into the relationship between food and age.